My name is Justin McClure, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today we're talking about the man with the thousand watt smile, Willem Dafoe. Now, I want to underline this. He was born in Wisconsin in 1955 as William James Dafoe. I'm going to say William, William Defoe throughout this episode. And he said in interviews he changed his name because he didn't like being called Billy. And his dad was also called William. So he didn't want to have that, uh, you know, two names in the same family. Well, I only found this out like last year. And, and you were furious. I wish he was here right now so I could punch him in the jaw <laughs> for having driv- driven us down this this madness of Willem for all these years. Do you think he corrects people when they call him William? He probably just lets it go, I right? think he probably lets it go. Mm-hmm. Probably just smiles and nods. But anyway, Willem Dafoe, look, he's a popular, highly respected actor, and if anything, I think he's underrated. Is he a popular actor in that my parents or people that are not like movie people would recognize him if they saw them? Oh, I, I think so. He mm. may not be a box office draw he's like top tier character actor if you will in blockbusters or bigger films and leading man in smaller films but i mean you you look at his filmography first of all i think he has maybe the best filmography of any actor at his level i mean it covers the waterfront from wild at heart to last temptation of christ to antichrist to spider-man you know everything from left to right to up to down and he's always passionate about the movies that he makes if you hear him in interviews he talks about how he likes directors who have a very strong vision and he's attracted to directors like that which would explain and all the choices that he makes and also he clearly has good taste well yeah i mean it's an interesting filmography because he's in some of the biggest movies he's in yeah spider-man no way home and all sorts of blockbusters but he also has a particular stable of auteurs that he works with through thick and thin you know abel ferrara paul schrader lars von trier wes anderson he's worked with these people even during times when they were not bankable and fashionable you know he he uses the spider-man clout to get you know six abel ferrera movies made one thing that really surprised me when reading about probably the most famous role he's had which is as the green goblin in sam raimi's spider-man is that he fought for that role to the point that he did a screen test for that role which is almost unthinkable at the level that he is as an actor two-time academy award nominee mm-hmm. by the time he was in that movie and if people don't know usually when actors get to a certain level they're like offer only like i'm not gonna do a screen test you know who willem dafoe is and you know when the recent spider-man no way home came out he gave interviews including one for gq where he said he actually wanted his role to be expanded so he could build on what he did in that first movie. Now, oftentimes when people of his level and experience are in a superhero movie and they say something like that, it's like... You see like the PR person with a gun trained on their back? Yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, I see the dump truck full of money at your house. (laughs) But in his case, I think I believe it because, you know, there are many actors who, you know, many great actors who get to his age. He's 66 now, I Mm -hmm. think. And they get tired and lazy and mercenary. Robert De Niro-ish, if you will. I mean, he's the go-to example, isn't he? Mm -hmm. And I'm sure, obviously, money is a consideration in what Willem Dafoe chooses. But even in those more mercenary movies, there's this joy of performance. Like, if you look at him in Spider-Man 2 and 3, where he only appears in kind of like hallucinations, he is giving it his all. Like, he did not have to show up in those movies. But when he screams, Avenge me! It's like, that's why you hire this guy. And you mentioned Robert De Niro. I mean, 
Robert De Niro's range has contracted as he's gotten older. He can still be great at times, occasionally. Yes. Not, not that often, but if, now, if now you get his like grizzled face in a close up and you project on that him thinking about death and the mistakes that he's made in his life. Yeah, but like in Dirty Grandpa. <laughs> that's right. That's right. But he's he's can be great in that narrower space. And with Defoe, like, yeah, he's in his 60s and I guess he can't play a young man anymore, but he keeps finding new kinds of roles, new textures. A movie like The Lighthouse, for example. Oh, he's so funny in that movie. And I think breaks new ground within, you know, playing with that kind of language, that kind of physical performance, that the things he does with his face in that movie are all new. Well, the thing about Defoe is that if you saw him in a couple of movies, you could make the broad assumption that, oh, he only does really one thing, right? The intense villain, because that's the kind of face that he had. It's such an easy to caricature face. You know, you with that big smile those intense eyes you think you could just box him into one thing but if you look at his career he's found clever ways to utilize that face and that intensity to play people all over the spectrum yeah i mean it's amazing somebody with a face like that mm-hmm. which is like you, you you don't know anyone with a face like no that. it's it's insanity it's like the jack nicholson joker face <laughs> yes. and and like you don't the, the fact that he's played roles as varied as like wild at heart but also like a character like the Florida Project, where he's sort of warm and avuncular, in addition to possessing a sort of relaxed authority. Because that's the thing is that that is the role that you give to you know Willem Dafoe. Uh, yeah, yeah. And like when you talk about like Florida Project or even something like The Lighthouse, where his intensity is not necessarily in the service of being only threatening, but is funny and he's playing at that level. Like that is an actor who's got every tool at his disposal. Or Pasolini, where it's a very kind of like still performance. Mm-hmm. It's a very inward performance but like there's there's something about that face that suggests like like a deep intelligence now what do you think if he had played the joker in tim burton's film what would that movie have looked like well i think it would have had different kinds of edges than the jack nicholson Mm -hmm. performance like like he was he's he was younger at the time and i think he was a little i love nicholson in that i mean we love nicholson that movie but i think the difference is that the audience going to see batman knows jack nicholson that's right but they wouldn't necessarily have known Defoe so they wouldn't have been that same kind of like comedic I guess pulse through the film yeah Nicholson's a little he's a little sticky he has a persona Mm -hmm. while like Willem Defoe you know him at that point but you wouldn't like kind have read into it it would have been i think a meaner performance that like when he would have shaken the hand and he's laughing you feel more threatened i mean i felt threatened as a child when jack nicholson turned jack palance into a skeleton yeah but i think it would have probably been even more intense if defoe had been in that role i think we read the same recent gq profile with him which was tied to the release of spider-man no way home (laughs) what they're not interviewing for the new abel ferreira film that he stars in it's crazy isn't it anyway in that interview he said that he likes to become a for the directors he works for and by this i think he likes to turn himself over wholeheartedly to the filmmaker and you can see that in the working relationships he has with these people well abel ferreira in particular you know the sorts of the sorts of places that he goes with ferreira he's also quoted in that piece saying i like the fact that someone needs you to do something for them and that frees you from a kind of delusion and a certain kind of self-centered view But if you have a good rapport with that person and they put you in a situation that pushes you, you're going to learn something. Now, I think this sort of gets at what I value about him. 
more than any other actor of his level of fame, I think, he seems fearless. Mm-hmm. Like he'll he'll put his his body through anything. He'll the sort of extremes of performance style, like he's he's not afraid to mug. He's not afraid to be broadly comic and or deeply vulnerable. You know, when I think of Willem Dafoe, the thing that comes to mind is an extreme to the performance. But then, you know, I'm thinking of like other extreme performers, for example, like Christian Bale in The Machinist. And I feel there isn't that sense of pretension to Defoe's performances or even the like look at me I'm doing this and I'm pushing it as far as it can be so like the act of doing it is as valuable to the performer as the performance that he's putting in the movie well as well I watched one of those videos you know the Willem Dafoe breaks down his career, you know, one of those Vanity Fair YouTube things. And something that comes a lot in that video is that he likes to lose touch with himself. So when he was making Last Temptation of Christ, he said that while filming in Morocco, the modern world seemed to fade away. It was so isolated and remote and so immersed in the sort of aesthetics of that time. Or, you know, when he made Shadow of the Vampire, there's three hours of makeup applied every day. And that that puts him in a headspace of like losing touch with himself. And I think from all his interviews, obviously, he's he's a smart guy, but he seems a very like instinctual actor. Mm. And and yeah, he likes to he seems to like to just like lose touch with his ego, lose touch with his surroundings. And also, you know, enter into this relationship with these filmmakers where he just submits to them. Well, I think that probably goes back to the fact that, you know, he started in theater and that he was one of the founding members of the experimental theater group, the Wooster group. And that kind of like, you know, giving yourself to the ensemble is part of that kind of experimental journey, that it's not about the individual as the centerpiece to the art that you're making. In fact, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but there's a scene in Tommaso, his film with Abel Ferreira that I know we both watched this week, where he's like leading an acting class and he says words to the effect of performing is always between control and abandon. I wrote it down. It doesn't entirely make sense to me, but he says, when we do some of these distracting things, things that don't seem to go together, it makes you feel off balance. But if you can relax in that state, it makes you more emotionally available. And he goes, he goes on like that. There seems in his whole style and, and methodology, this push pull between control and, and abandon. So if we talk about his biography, there's not anything particularly exciting about how he grew up. Grew up in, yeah, Wisconsin, born in 1955, moved to dirty New York in 1975, became one of the founding members of the Wooster Group alongside the likes of Jill Clayburgh and Spalding Gray, who you've all seen in Maraschino Cherry. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, the classic Radley Metzger hardcore film. That's right. Yeah, the Wooster Group, I mean, I don't know too much about it, but it's like very, it's still- it's, Theater? Wait, the stuff moved 24 frames per second in that? <laughs> well, actually a little bit, because the Wooster Group, I do know that they incorporate a lot of like mixed- Multimedia. Me- yeah. yeah, a lot of video and pre-recorded audio and strange stuff like that, and they're still going to this day. In fact, by the way, in that video, that Vanity Fair one, he said that Troy Duffy, when Troy Duffy was pursuing him for Boondock Saints, came and saw a Wooster group. And he said, I don't think Troy Duffy made heads or tails of my performance, but uh, yeah, I guess he was impressed. Yeah. He probably impressed that he wanted Willem Dafoe in his movie, a major Hollywood actor. I love the idea that there are multiple films that are made on the back of Willem Dafoe. It's like, well, we got Dafoe. All right, you got the funding. By the way, we, we hadn't even mentioned Boondock Saints up to this point, but this is this is what I love about that career. It's like 
his career is just this incredibly broad net where, yeah, it's like, yeah, he's in Mississippi Burning mm-hmm. and he's in, you know, the Spider-Man movie or a million other blockbusters. And he's in, you know, there's a vast amount of people who love him for the Boondock Saints. Yep. He said in that video that anyone who comes up to him under a certain age, he's like, well, they're going to talk about the Boondock Saints. Or, or just carrying themselves a certain way. <laughs> yeah. So if we just track his career, his first major role in a motion picture was in Heaven's Gate, but he's not even credited in, in it. I don't think he has any lines. Or his, fir- his first role in a major motion picture. Yeah. Right? I mean, he also starred in The Loveless, Catherine Bigelow's first feature film. And if you see him in that, like he looks like almost a cartoon like his face so smooth handsome he's supposed to play like a motorbike rider and he is the perfect embodiment of that thing to live or die in la obviously another big early credit as well well, he became like a villain right so he's like a walter hill streets of fire he's wearing those overalls he's just hamming it up and you'd think that's what his career would be like if he was making films earlier in hollywood they're like all right you're gonna be the black hat in all of these cowboy movies and that's the rest of your career and i guess platoon sort of blew him up Mm. and showed the vast range academy award winning that intensity in his eyes i mean every academy award nominated oh, i should say sorry. in my heart he's winning and that you know every cover of the film is him being shot sorry spoiler alert for <laughs> but like looking at his career it's interesting to see kind of the choices that he makes following platoon that was the movie that like i think brought him to a level of attention that took him above just being oh the character actor that you hire over and over again and then martin scorsese's last temptation of christ made him a leading man which at any other time would have probably been an impossibility for him an interesting casting choice at that time i mean i don't i don't fully know the behind the scenes story of why he was cast in that movie but i mean it's a gentle performance that he gives in the movie, but there's something about Defoe in both his face and his manner that hints at like a roiling inside that I guess fit that interpretation of Christ. I think Scorsese's decision for that particular role was like, listen, people have an image of the white Jesus in their mind. And I do not want to cast Jim, Jim Caviezel. Yeah, yeah. In the role, because that's like, you know, the cartoony image of Jesus. I want something with hard edges that even if you see him for just a moment, there's something that feels off about him just if you glance at him and that adds you know the intensity to every scene that they're portraying like that's the, the amazing shot of him turning water into wine and martin scorsese like whips the camera around and he just kind of goes like holds it up gives so a good. wink yeah yeah popular gift these days <laughs> yeah because it's a great scene you watched last temptation of christ again this week i did i mean great movie like every time i watch it, i'm like have i seen this and it's like of course i have we did an episode of jesus on it and it always just hits me every time and i can't help but like think about everything that surrounds the movie the fact that what would have martin scorsese's version of this film have been if he didn't have like so little money and because he has so little money it's that much more kind of impactful i'm i'm so glad he only had this amount of money like i i love the sort of like the fact that the sermon on the mount in that movie is just like it's not even a sermon it's like a on dozen the mount. people yeah and it just has this kind of like pasolini quality in the commentary he's like oh you know but if it was done at this time there wouldn't be that many people and it actually kind of like william defoe's perform everybody's william defoe oh no you got me <laughs> Willem Dafoe's performance in the film fits that kind of AIP energy perfectly. And, you know, listening to the commentary track, Willem Dafoe said, I don't know why he hired me. They did everybody in Hollywood at the time, but I'm the one who got the role. So I just got in there. By the way, do, don't you find that in his interviews and in his commentary tracks, there's kind of like there's a limit to how much he says or can say. Like, I do think he's like he's very instinctive. Willem? And, yeah. Yeah. Like, I remember when Antichrist came out, mm-hmm. like seeing a TIFF Q&A with him and his is sort of like at the time antichrist was such a 
a controversial movie and people wanted like some explanation yeah some like subtextual like how did you approach why is it why is it this way explain Mm -hmm. justify this movie and i just remember him being kind of like i don't know you know i I just think it's like a beautiful painting you know yeah i didn't see anything where he talked about his particular acting process like oh does he go in super prepared but i don't get that sense from the way that he plays all of these roles that there is like a spark of energy in him that you get in every role even though if he's not like you know given a big spider-man or boondock saints performance there is still like his eyes his face anytime he smiles like that smile is a thousand water and when you put it within the context of how he looks and that he just carries himself it gives it that edge that you feel that he doesn't need to like oh i need to get into this character beforehand because i will get into the character while i'm on set one of his most prolific collaborators is paul schrader and actually i think my favorite defoe performance in a schrader movie is an autofocus i mean we love that scene where they both jack off and they're watching the pornography or or yeah or yeah greg kinnear is like looking at the tv and he says wait what's your hand why is your hand on my ass mm-hmm. and he's like it, it's an orgy <laughs> Like, I don't know. I just, I just love, I just love his sort of deadpan performance in that movie. How did you feel like in that Vanity Fair interview? He's like, you know, I just kind of learned that these are comedies afterwards. I feel like that's a very humble thing to say, but he knows what he's Seems doing. Seems a little disingenuous. Yes. Yeah. So Light Sleeper. We, I hadn't seen this one in a while. Me neither. I'm surprised that I kind of pushed past it when we did our Schrader episode. Probably because I was like, all right, I get it. Well, it's another the one of those. Yeah. But man, from a distance, love it. So good. I mean, I think I like Schrader more and more as as the years go by. And I think I'm like even more receptive than I was then when mm. we did that episode to kind of like, oh, this is where that character that character is on the journey of Schrader's mm. career. Like, Well, what's fascinating about Light Sleeper is that it can almost not exist without the other films that they're always in constant discussion with like Taxi Driver or even, you know, the later films that we would made like First like, Reformed, mm-hmm, Master exactly. Gardner. Well, like Taxi Driver feels like an angry young man's movie. It, and Absolutely. And First Reformed, Card Counter, they're like old, old man, man movies and this one is a middle-aged man's movie but what's great about it is that like if i knew this going in i would have probably been who i want to see that it's, it's kind of a hopeful movie as well like there's still sadness and there's still destruction within the film but at the end of the day it's about defoe reaching wait could it be some kind of bliss perhaps i wonder how trader could visually illustrate that in some way some sort of pickpocket ending <laughs> if you will yeah wait, you saw master gardener right Does yeah he i do did. it again no no oh, he doesn't damn it. oh it's got all the other trader stuff oh but man at the the end of the card counter i remember sitting at the cinema being like i can't believe he's doing it again. <laughs> so good so yeah in light sleeper he plays a drug dealer who's sort of on the precipice of middle age he's been in prison for four years during which time he's he originally became a drug dealer to feed his own habit but he's become clean over the years mm-hmm. but can't get out of being a drug dealer and so the film follows him just on the cusp of Giuliani's New York. But but like the atmosphere is particular. It has a kind of like 2 a.m. woozy atmosphere, and yet it's also not, the style isn't really in your face. It's much more coldly objective than Taxi Driver is. But I find that Defoe's performance in this is kind of threading that needle that Schrader is trying to pull off in the sense that like in any other movie, you would expect something horrible to happen to Defoe or for him to do a horrible thing. And just his presence and knowing who he is as just a performer and where he could go you keep expecting that to happen like oh he's gonna fall back into drugs or he's gonna do something tasteless or he's gonna do something like morally repugnant but no 
He's just trying to kind of like get a handle on himself and be better. And that's what the entire movie's about. And, you know, knowing Defoe and what he's capable of, you think that he could go like he, yeah, he, big. he yeah, he could do the Harvey Keitel bad lieutenant performance. Mm-hmm. But he's very, I mean, not not to get hack about it, but he's very Brissonian in, yes. in the film. But that's why you hire someone like Defoe, because that intensity is there. But like, that's the opposite of Brissonian almost, because Brisson's models, they're supposed to be like a vacant look on their face i don't know if defoe can do that vacantness yeah well i mean paul schrader as a filmmaker has always been stuck halfway between like mm-hmm. his, the brisson influence and the sort of like the maximalist <laughs> yeah the martin scorsese like yeah. sex and violence vibe and so in defoe there's a performer that like is in the midpoint between those two mm-hmm. those two aesthetics like He's he's obviously been hired. He's supposed to be understated. Schrader wants him to play it like still, but he hired somebody with a certain amount of like God-given mm. like radiation coming off him. Has Schrader talked about that he's pleased with how Light Sleeper turned out? I don't remember what he says in Schrader on Schrader. I seem to recall that when in film comment when he submitted his best of the nineties, was Light Sleeper in there? top ten list. Yeah, Light Sleeper okay. was on there. So it's not one of Schrader's. Oh, I cast the wrong guy or gal, and you know. No, then the movie doesn't work yeah yeah and i mean like yeah light sleeper is probably one of the perfect defoe performances if you're looking at like what can he do without going super big because i feel that that's the thing that when you think of defoe you're like magnetically attracted to those things because even something like platoon like what you remember is him at the end like just making a huge face of the bullets rip through his back oh and mind you i just want to put on the record that i do think he's capable of being bad like oh defoe yeah where would you say that he was bad in so i haven't seen it since it came out but the life aquatic oh you think he's bad in life aquatic controversial opinion maybe i'd feel differently too goofy like with the accent yeah yeah maybe if i saw it again i'd feel differently i do think like it's a problem of the movie as well Mm. like that's a movie that's sort of all over the place i remember liking life aquatic and finding willem defoe funny in it but i again i feel like that's probably completely character based and like what was demanded of him in that film i mean i'm sure you haven't seen boondock states in a long time but i did watch some clips of him yeah in so it, did I. I and i went yeah that's what i remember yeah same and i have to say watching those clips this time i i kind of thought like well you know why not yeah i mean he's in, in the movie, movie. Yeah, yeah like yeah. everything is turned up to 11 so why doesn't he just kind of like break the board with his performance and also i think he's kind of like the closest thing to a good thing in that movie yes you know <laughs> wait you mean the cult classic boondock saints is not a hallowed classic oh excuse me i forgot ron jeremy's performance uh, oh god <laughs> you're bringing it all back <laughs> were, were, you, you remember being in high school you know and my sit, friend's like you gotta see boondock in saints. some fucking basement oh, yeah. you know i had a friend his name was daniel and he handed me it's like you gotta watch this everyone, movie man everyone had that friend yeah. why why was it that one why was it boondock saints just like hit that nerve because it's such a lame movie i know <laughs> but that that's why that's why when you're in high i mean i didn't even like that when i was in high school mm. you know not to brag not oh to yeah brag no, i liked my, it when i was in high school you did? yeah probably for a month and then i moved on yeah and i would look back and go no no not good you know when you have nothing a little bit of something i guess is enough it's like i love fight club back then too I, I still think Fight Club is pretty good. I think well, Fight Club is way better than yeah. Boondock Saints. I, I think is I was in high school. I was watching, you know, Reservoir Dogs and mm. stuff. And it's like <laughs> just as good as Boondock Saints. I, I think I knew at the time. OK, Reservoir Dogs, higher level. Mm-hmm. Than... Listen, folks, I'm always on the right side of history. Don't don't bet against <laughs> me. Did you ever see Boondock 2? 
I think I maybe watched 15 minutes of it. Oh, Defoe comes back? At the end. Yes. And he's there for the cliffhanger ending for Boondock <laughs> 3. Three. 3, which any day now, I'm hoping. <laughs> I can't believe that movie came out after Overnight, the documentary about the director, was escaped. I think I was happy for him, actually, when it did. I thought, you know what? Good for you. You fucking did it. You, know? you, <laughs> you were able you to- You showed everyone. <laughs> that that movie was popular enough that it didn't matter that you were- There's a whole documentary dedicated to how much of a piece of crap you are. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, like, I watched a film, like, I think it's White Sands that it's called, and it was during the- Ken we make Willem Dafoe just a generic Hollywood leading man and I think that one what kind of sinks it is the fact that it's directed by everyone's favorite you know journeyman of the 90s roger donaldson what else was he tomorrow Dante's never Peak? dies yeah and no he wasn't tomorrow never dies I, I i was surprised i don't think he did a james bond film he's a guy that was like a new zealand director and made like these really hard-hitting like early new zealand movies and then he went on and he's like 13 days dante's peak species the remake of the getaway cocktail but like early on, he has Sleeping Dogs, Smash Palace is one that brings up a lot. But now it's like the November Man, the Pierce Brosnan. Oh, that's film. why I thought that's of why it. That's why you yeah. thought of it, yeah. He's kind of like the go-to, like, you will be shocked to hear that he interviewed Martin Campbell at a DJ screening. Like, <laughs> there were ever two kind of personalities that were made for each other. It's those two. The boys. And so like in that film, like he's surrounded by great performances, like Samuel Jackson's in the film as well. But he's just asked to not do very much. So that intensity is there. But he's there's no way to kind of direct it anywhere because he's just kind of doing kind of like you know 90s generic thriller stuff so he's not bad but he's just present well i watched body of evidence yes a film i said oh we're gonna watch and then i looked at will's letterbox and was like, oh, i guess he didn't watch it so i I, I I did you know you know what i watched it and i didn't write a review yet because oh. i didn't want to shoot my watch so here i am having watched fucking body of evidence <laughs> and how was it or how was willem dafoe in it well first of all the movie has a reputation for being bad mm. and it is okay yeah it's more than two hours too right no, it's a little under two hours. Oh, okay. Even the unrated version that I watched on Tubi. Mm. So it's the story of a woman who's on trial for fucking her husband to death. <laughs> That's the premise. And yeah. they have to, like, was it intentional? Was it not? She's played by Madonna. She's in a Anna Nicole Smith-like marriage <laughs> to a wealthy old pervert. Willem Dafoe plays her attorney. Who well the the tension is that this lawyer becomes you know seduced and corrupted by this this mm. femme fatale character <laughs> the innocent man played by Willem Dafoe well I think you've you've just there without even watching the movie head on kind of what's wrong with that I mean for this to work Madonna you <laughs> you've got to think he's either never been looked at by a woman before mm. or that she's tapping into something that's been long repressed and in this movie like he's married to like thirty year old Julianne Moore and they seem to have a very robust sex life based on the visual evidence we see on screen <laughs> and you know he's willem dafoe his face looks like the devil himself <laughs> so is that how you would describe willem dafoe's face i mean it could it could yeah like if someone asked me to like draw willem dafoe's face with one shape it would definitely be a triangle <laughs> Like, because of the way the smile goes up, I, I just imagine it just kind of, and that's, I guess, you know, if you're talking about the devil, that's what it looks like. It's that triangle. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a movie that, like, the whole the whole central thing doesn't work. And, you know, it's kind of going for a Paul Verhoeven, you know, yeah. overheated tone. And, it, you know, it doesn't work. It's bad, folks. Body of evidence. <laughs> you Famously bad movie is bad. One that doesn't get talked about that much. It's like, interesting, though, just because, like, 
as we've seen, he can play all sorts of roles, Florida Project to the Lighthouse mm-hmm. to whatever. And, you know, here's a here's a role that it looks like he's just miscast in. And I think maybe in a better movie, he could have pulled off a role like well, that. Well, I'm sure that he was also interested in the role because it was directed by a guy who had some heat at the time. Ulai something or other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I think he did Last Exit to Brooklyn was mm-hmm. one of That's his. That's right. That's right. And so, like, you can understand, oh, there's maybe a Paul Verhoeven style visionary coming to Hollywood to make a picture that could maybe be another, I always get it, basic instinct. Yeah. Also, I think frankly, like all of the explicit sex in the movie was probably a bit of an attraction just in terms of like for an actor who likes to like fully throw himself into roles and like experiment, he probably thought that that was an interesting like terrain in which to Mm. play, you know, one of those like explicit sexual thrillers. So like, even if it's a role that, you know, maybe you don't feel that he works very well and you can intellectualize why he would pick it other than like i love money i'm sure there was a bit of that too also you know big movie madonna mm-hmm. at the height of her fame i mean he definitely does not do all the abel ferreira films for money no and that's you know if you look at his career you'll have a couple movies and then it'll be interrupted by an abel ferreira film so we both watched one of the more recent ones they've made what six or seven movies together and tomaso completes the brundlefly like transformation of the two of them joining together i like that some of the synopses say oh you know william defoe plays a screenwriter living in italy it's like no no he's just writing the films that abel ferreira directs so like, yeah the the concept they ever say he's a director in the film well there's a whole aa meeting that he goes to mm-hmm. where he's like so we're making the movie in in miami and i'm i'm you know hot shit and i'm yeah it's gonna be like la dulce vita oh, yeah way more gravel to the performance. Like we're doing an able impression. Yeah, we're doing an impression. But so the the Tommaso character is saying that, and it's like, oh, that's the blackout. Yes. That's the movie Abel Ferrara made in Miami. And like, I mean, okay, he's wait, storyboarding are, for the Serbia, the Siberia, the Siberia, yeah. Siberia, yeah, yeah. Okay, so but like he's giving that AA meeting and he's talking about this, and it's like, wait, are you a screenwriter or are you an actor? Because we saw him leading an acting class. Does, can you imagine an Abel Ferrara acting class? <laughs> oh, what you gotta do is, you know, you move your body. So what? What exactly? He's a character who's in the film industry what exactly he does is a little uh he he is both willem dafoe and abel ferreira now one of the questions that kept hitting me while watching this film even beyond dafoe's performance is is, who is this based on (laughs) no would this work if you do not know who abel ferreira is that's an interesting question. I mean, I don't know. Would would anything Godard made after Breathless work if you didn't know who no, Godard who is? No, who made Breathless? Yeah, probably not. Yeah, it's like there are certain filmmakers who like their work is part of a much longer like conversation. But like this film is in particular like in constant tension of, hey, you know this is Abel Ferreira. I mean, it's his wife. It's his daughter that's on screen. He talks about he's living in Italy just like Abel does. And that Defoe does live in Italy now. I believe they're neighbors. <laughs> that's so funny. Shut up, Ferreira, turn it down. Slumber party? I don't oh, know. Who knows? I mean, would it work? I actually think it might work if you didn't know who Ferreira is, just mm-hmm. because, like, I mean, it's beautifully shot. It's like, you know, the nicest looking home movie you've ever seen. Well, it looks like a home movie. It's like brown. The camera seems to be almost catching the moments as they happen. It's uh, Werner Herzog's cinematographer, really? by the way, who, who shot it. Peter Zeitlinger. And it was a COVID movie, wasn't it? I. It was... 2019, so it was before. Zeros and Ones was a COVID. Oh, okay. It feels like it could be a COVID movie, Yeah, because it feels like, oh, just come to my apartment, man, and you can just shoot, and, you know, Defoe's gonna have sex with my wife. (laughs) Well, like all of Ferrara's recent movies, this one feels, it feels open-ended. It requires a lot of kind of audience participation to put the pieces together. Yeah, I mean, knowing who Abel Ferrara is, I think adds a lot of context to the film as well. 
because you understand that like, oh, this is a man who struggled his entire life. And now he's living in Italy. He's restarting again with a 29-year-old wife. That's right. And I think potentially, even if you don't know who Abel Ferrer is, you could get something out of this mm-hmm. movie. Because, you know, the struggles that the Tommaso character goes through. First of all, I think brilliantly played by Willem Dafoe, who does an excellent Ferrer impersonation while also being... A little more easy to take than yeah, Ferrera. I think is. if he did like, and he could probably do like a like perfect Ferrera impersonation. There's a Conan interview where he's like, Ah, Conan, I love that interview you did with Ferrera. And then he like makes the face that Ferrera does. <laughs> yeah. and he's like, Oh, I know who that is. Yeah, but in, in this one, like, yeah, he's like, he's got a lot of the sharp edges still. Mm-hmm. That you can understand the kind of like thoughts and feelings and anger that's bubbling under the surface as well. And I, yeah, I think the way that he carries himself, the way he moves his body, like you just you just feel the years you feel the experience on him and it's a character where the past is always present in the present Mm -hmm. you see that those aa meetings like he the way he carries himself is i mean willem dafoe looks like kind of weird in his old age yeah well he's always looked weird from 2000 onward and he carries the scars of that in his performance i think but on top of all that i mean what could you get out of this movie if you don't know who Ferreira is? I mean, it's depiction of like somebody in his 60s trying at this late date in his life to make his life better while also feeling, you know, the weight of the past mm-hmm. and, and the consequences of all the decisions he's made is very powerful, as are just like the it's depiction of just the day-to-day struggles of like being in a domestic partnership i would know struggles because i never have any issues and we always get along oh oh same same of course (laughs) i'm just saying that certain of the scenes where tomaso and his wife are talking and what begins as like a pleasant thing devolves into bickering and then comes back out and Mm -hmm. then devolves into bickering Somebody might identify with that. <laughs> yes. I don't know who could. I mean, the performance is so strong that we feel well, yes. that perhaps if that would happen to us, That's we would right. understand. That's right. And I mean, Defoe, again, there's always that kind of like threat of him going to the next level, which I feel that if you hung out with Abel Ferreira, you would have that like, oh, when is he going to go to the next level? So he's perfect for portraying that kind of character. Well, also like the two AA meetings that we see in the movie, the first one where he's talking about like being in Miami and being on crack and all that, like he's so funny and he's mm-hmm. so alive when he's telling the story he's telling it almost like a raconteur but like his tone sort of goes in and out of like regret mode and raconteur mode and then later when there's the other AA meeting and he's talking about like having abandoned his first family basically Did Ferreira do that? He must have. He right? must have. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's like I think his he had a, he had a wife. Oh, but he mentions like we adopted children. I was like, who is giving children to Abel Ferreira? Yeah, at any point in life. Well, a number of people have. Yes. So I mean, yeah, Defoe. I hope he'll be Ferreira's muse until Ferreira can't make movies anymore because oh, he'll got- outlive everyone. <laughs> yeah, look at cockroach. But it makes me wonder as well is that like I guess Defoe for the rest of his career as he kind of ages into. Yeah, the wizened old man. He's on the path that he clearly just wants to keep doing. <laughs> like, you know, Hollywood stuff, let me do indie stuff, Hollywood stuff. I think it's amazing that he seems to, even at this late date, have a career that doesn't seem compromised. And he's someone who, he said in that Vanity Fair interview that, like, he looks for roles as well. Like, he approached Robert Eggers and said, hey man, please let me do something with you. And yeah, and I mean, Lars von Trier, I, I know when Antichrist came out, he said that he'll often call up Lars von Trier and say, what's going on? You oh, know, that's Right. Do you have anything for me? It's, like, who who seeks out Lars von Trier? I mean, somebody who does experimental theater and wants to challenge themselves and be in those kind of projects. Well, that's it for William Defoe. William? Oh, one last one to go out on. 
Justin, do we have any letters? As per usual, you can send us letters at Podcast at gmail.com. Our first letter is from JHB, and he goes, Justin and Will, long-time listener, and was prompted by your comment that the man from Hong Kong is what James Bond films should be. That comment interested me because Bond movies have a reputation for thrilling action set pieces and being the standard of spy adventures. This comment on going through Will's old reviews on Letterboxd led me to agree that despite the great action sets, beautiful women, and outrageous villains... Wait, what great action? Wait, we're about to get that. The films are mostly lacking, if not dull. This is a childhood favorite franchise, but after seeing someone like Jimmy Wang Yu in action, it's hard for me to be thrilled by a fake Connery Moore karate chop. Amen, brother. I don't believe you reviewed the whole series. Will did see every James Bond movie. I have seen every James Bond. But was wondering if you could go further into your thoughts on the Bond. Bad or good? Regards, Durango Savage. Well, I think a lot of the appeal of the James Bond movies, particularly the older ones, is... I was a child when they came out, and it made me feel like a man. And, I w- and I'm 70 years old now. <laughs> yes. Uh, but, but, al- but also, it's like it's probably like the mood, the atmosphere of it, more than anything. Like, when I was a kid w- watching those movies... I've said this before. I've said everything I have to say before, but I'll say it again. I remember renting Goldfinger for the first time, and there was an ad on the VHS that began black screen. Narrator says, looking for a little peace and quiet. We didn't think so. And you know, and then it's like a slow moving camera <laughs> in Goldfinger. I know. Well, in that ad, it's like people skiing off hills and explosions and car chases and stuff. Those are in the movie that are two and a half hours long, and they're spread across twenty movies. Yes. Yeah. So I mean, you've got to enjoy. Like back in the sixties, I think they just enjoyed like a guy fatly sitting by a pool, like. <laughs> smacking a woman's ass or like yeah. or they liked waste but, of a good scotch or yeah or if you've seen ugh, if you've seen you only live twice lately the dr evil villain lair is like the camera just fucking sits there and films that lair for about 15 minutes from every possible angle and you just had to get into that headspace you know what's funny about those movies too is people go well that was the action of the time and it's like look at what fucking william whitney is doing it is a hundred times more exciting than anything in the james bond film and yeah i mean to say nothing of i mean the year that a view to a kill came out police story came out <laughs> i'm like i'm sorry i mean they tried real late with tomorrow never dies we're like we could do this hong kong thing right i I kind of like View to a Kill, though. That's one of my more preferred Roger Moore ones. Because he's like super old and it's the 80s. I like that. But then it, you got Grace Jones. You got Christopher Walken. And you got your your man, Robert Davey, as well. Well, that's oh, license, getting that license to Kill. Right. Is Benicio Del Toro in a View he's, to a Kill? He's in License to Kill oh, as well. Okay. License to Kill, the second Dalton movie, is kind of good. Mm. It, it feels more like a Jerry Bruckheimer movie. And then movie. they put the brakes on that and they're like, no, no, no. This will taint the entire Bond franchise if we make too many good movies. So let's get back to uh, the series basis. People, you don't need to write us any angry letters saying we don't get it. To be to be clear, I love James Bond. Mm, I, I mean, don't know if I could say that. You can't say that. And I sat in a. I love ooh, James Bond without having without liking most of the movies. A Fifteen-hour TIFF marathon. You, of, you sat through that? Yes, I did. And oh I think it was all the Doctor No, no. What was the? It was all the Blofeld movies. Was the gimmick? And did we see even You Never Say Never Again, or is it Diamonds Are Forever? One of those ones. Never Say Never Again is the one that Connery came back. Came for, back for yeah. Which is shit. That's <laughs> so bad. That's worse than any of the official ones. And I, the, my most vivid memory of that screening, which started at like. 8 p.m. at night. That's too late, people. Oh, is that the person beside me fell asleep with his eyes open. And so he was snoring and he was just staring ahead. And I was like, wow, never seen that before. 
So that was the highlight of that Bond marathon that I saw. I wouldn't want to be you in the second half of that marathon where Ugh. it's like Diamonds Are Forever is that's the one where he's in Which Las Vegas. Which is the one that starts with the fake Blofeld that they drop in a that's Diamonds that, or you know. No, never. that that one is a Roger Moore one. It's I think it's for your eyes only. Because they lost the rights to Blofeld, right? And also that was the year. I was that the year that or maybe it was Octopus Ah, you know what? I can't I can't remember. Well, you know what? I've threatened that I will watch all the James Bond movies and we'll do like a Godzilla episode where we go and you don't need to because you've seen them all already you can speak off the cuff of, of those ones. I miss watching the James Bond movies actually because during mm. during the pandemic yeah. you know my girlfriend and I it was just a very easy like what do we do tonight let's pick a Bond movie and yeah, like four times out of five, they would be bad. Mm-hmm. But it would, but also like at a certain point, you get Stockholm syndrome, and it's like, <laughs> ah, it's Q again. It's, so who's your favorite Bond? I mean, Pierce Brosnan, obviously. Yes, you have. Yes. Yeah. So the best one, I think, is Daniel Craig. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Connery, you know, planted the flag. But I think it's Daniel Craig. But I like, I like Pierce. He's mm-hmm. my boyhood Bond. Yeah, you know, you're, you're the Bond you had as a kid. He's also. Let's be honest, like Sean Connery, you can understand him being slick and cool. Roger Moore was like 120. Roger Moore is probably my least favorite, honestly. Yeah, Timothy Dalton, he's got that mean streak. I like him. Yeah, but when I think of Bond, and I think that slick Remington steel, and it's Pierce Brosnan. I love Pierce Brosnan because it's like he's charismatic, but he's also kind of cheesy. (laughs) Yes, that's the thing. And that's what you want from James Bond, as opposed to the full plate of Gouda you get with S'more. And, And yeah, like with Pierce Brosnan, he was the one who, when he would say the lines, would like milk it the most. Like, name's Bond. James Bond. <laughs> like yeah. a male model. Whereas Daniel Craig says it as if... Like, he's, he's he doesn't want anything to do with Bond, this. He just, James Bond. Yeah, he wants know. to just keep going. All right, well, thank you very much for that letter. We shall return to James Bond. Yeah, James, James Bond will Club. return. Yeah, exactly. da, da, da. Our next letter goes, watching VHS in 2023. Yes, please. This letter is from Nathan, and he goes, hey, Justin and Will... On my way out the door at my last job, I snatched a Sony tri- Trinitron CRT and a VCR DVD combo player that had been sitting in the conference room untouched for probably 15 years. I mainly wanted the TV for retro gaming, but to my surprise, I started trawling Craigslist for VHS tapes. So far, I've picked up a handful of bootleg 50s era Roger Corman films. Let's say there's no such thing as a bootleg Roger Corman film from the 50s because he didn't put a copyright notice on that. So. That's right. We own those movies. <laughs> yes, the people do. <laughs> and some 70s, 90s sci-fi movies, including recent Important Cinema Club and Michael and Us Subjects, Mad Max and Galaxy Quest. Now I'm wondering, in 2023, are there any specific films or eras of films that are best experienced on video cassette? Does it simply come down to personal nostalgia? With your expansive physical media collections, do you ever bust out the VCR? Best, Nathan. Let's start with you, Justin. Do you have any any preferred? No, I mean, do I like watching things on VHS? Yeah, I like it. But if you gave me the choice for some films and went, do you want the remastered Blu-ray or do you want it on VHS? I go, "Ah, give me that remastered Blu-ray. Yeah, I would say like 99% of the time I'll go for the Mm Blu-ray. But you know what I like on VHS is the Friday the 13th series. Mm, Yeah. So like 80s horror films were good on VHS. Yeah. And I love it if there's like a commercial at the beginning for like, the Tom Savini fan club or something, you know, cool stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, li- I like that vibe. I like the texture of VHS. Like, I like how it feels and how it looks. He mentions retro gaming, and I think there's a difference there only in that retro gaming was meant for CRT te- TVs, that if you watch it on HD TVs, it looks wrong because, like, there isn't that softness that you get that people expected when you would boot up your Super Nintendo. And, like, the thing is, like, a lot of films, if they're shot on film, those filmmakers assume they would be projected on a theater screen. Like, that's the way they wanted to see it now is that the way that we think about them in the collective consciousness not 
particularly, which is why I love like VHS versions of movies on Blu-ray or DVD. But like, I don't really whip out my VHS that much, especially because it's become a collector's market of like, if I could just go and I'm like, whoa, wow, this rare film on VHS. No, because there's like 30 other people fighting me for it. I know. I hate I hate that. You used to be able to just mm. get like stuff for, for cheap. I mean, when Suspect Video closed here in Toronto, I bought a ton of VHS. I wish I got more, to yeah. be honest. You know, I'm haunted by the ones I didn't get. And that are long gone, never to be seen again. But like, it's fun to watch something like a VHS of, you know, old Nick Zed movies mm. or like something weird video like loop compilations or stuff like that. Well, those that. don't exist even on DVD probably. That's right, yeah. Because like they made them just for that tape, put it out there and probably didn't think about it again and lost all the elements. But the thing almost feels like a historic document itself. Like, were you at the Nitrate Film Festival that one year where they showed like Henri Langlois' print of... Yes, uh, L'Age d'Or, yeah. Yeah, and it felt sort of like, oh wow, this this print itself like came from the time. And maybe this Godard is just... watched this print. Godard himself. Yeah. watched it and i felt that way you know if you watch you know your nick zed vhs it's like oh yeah he personally had like a like a tape to tape and they was making them and putting them out into the world yeah yeah now here it's come all the way here the only thing that i idolize of when it comes to vhs specifically and watching them on it is when i would visit ben ruffett he's like look at my vhs collection i'm like oh my god i've never heard of this movie maybe only 10 tapes exist of it and he hunted it down i also like the display of vhs like if you have shelves and you put all the vhs on them i just love that kind of video store aesthetic but that's only because we were kids and that's what we grew up on right i mean i wish i could go back in time and wander the blockbuster of my childhood yeah or the mom and pop shop of your childhood that would have all the weird vhs that blockbuster doesn't have i never i didn't go to those stores you never went to a mom and pop i mean i'm trying to think west coast video was a chain but it felt very mom and pop shop when i was a kid because i only learned decades later that it was run in part by lee demar the the director of Jesus Christ Vampire Hunter. I guess, you know, when I was really young, like when I was four years old, there was one at Crossroads Plaza in Etobicoke, a mom and pop store that we went to before the big blockbuster was mm. built. Yes, we were part of the problem. And one of my earliest memories is, you know, I, I loved the Adam West Batman on TV, of course. And I remember seeing at the store, Batman the movie with Adam West and being like, what is jaw that? on the floor? Like, oh my God, they made a movie of this. And then dad said, oh, we have to wait till next week. It's rented. And like, I cried. I literally <laughs> cried. It yeah. was like, but no, no, I have to have it out. That was the longest week of my life waiting, <laughs> waiting for that. And when you got it, it was worth it, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's exactly it so, what you would want. It was so great. It had four villains. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, when I think of like walking in and being awed by VHS, the memory that comes to mind is when I would walk into like you know, small video stores in towns where we would be camping or visiting somebody at a cottage. And like those were, they'd have the big boxes. I'd be like, what is this? Because it would be like kind of an era that was before our time because we were renting in like the mid 90s, but like late 80s, early 90s, that was like the Wild West as someone like Lloyd Kaufman would say, listen, like videotapes would cost the same. So it would cost the same and take up the same shelf space for something like Saturday Night Fever or whatever trash that Trone was putting out. So it was like the Wild West. And that was the most interesting part of video stores like that. When, you know, when we're going to Blockbusters in the late, two, in the late 90s, it's like, no, they just have a million of the new release and maybe one or two of like the little releases. Anyway, you mentioned VHS being a collector's market. That's particularly true in a big city like this. I mean, it's great when you go to like, oh, like the little flea markets. A little out of the way, yeah, yeah flea markets, small town, and you can find something good. It's the same thing with bookstores. Like we have big used bookstores here, but it's like, you see the same it's gosh darn books. Over. 
over. Yeah. yeah. That like anytime you do, you're like, oh, you go for that one book that you're like, that's the rare thing. I need it. Well, I'm sure you've done that, too. Like you see you're in one of your picked over bookshelves in Toronto and you see that rare book and you like literally like leap toward you like you embarrass (laughs) yourself. Justin is near and you're like, I got to get it before he does. (laughs) (laughs) If I if I'm by the way, multiple times this has happened. I'll walk past BMV. I'm about to go into BMV and Justin comes out and I'm like, oh, well, there's nothing there for me now because he would have he would have got it first <laughs> you just turn around and go back home i say well i guess i'll go in but yeah, yeah. just sadly go through i'm going there's nothing here for me <laughs> well thank you very much for that letter and as per usual you can send us letters at important center club podcast at gmail.com next week on the podcast we are talking about a broad subject we're talking about banned movies or unavailable movies or movies that are lost in limbo and available only in bootleg form what is the kind of appeal of these films we live in a time where almost every film available well except for the silence those are all long gone unfortunately but like you know the 80s or 90s if you hear a film was released around that time and is unavailable you're like i need to know more about this now there are so many movies like mary heron's i shot andy warhol like todd salon's happiness like these are movies that are like lost in a sort of like limbo as well like Mm. lane may's heartbreak kid and then there are movies like well, I mean, our aesthetic in trying to figure out what we would talk about on this episode are what were the sorts of movies that, you know, when we went to like suspect video or something, or you go to dvdrparty.com and you would see that like photocopy, like, like bootleg cover, the bootleg shelf. What are those kinds of movies? Now, some of the classics of my coming of age ones like, well, not my coming of age, some of the ones that used to be there, like when I was younger, like the 60s Batman show or Otto Preminger's Skidoo have since been released. Mm -hmm. Those used to be bootleg staples. But there are many that haven't. Yes. I mean, the majority of the ones I remember being a teenager and being like, oh, I wish I could see that. Like, almost all of them have been released. Female Trouble is on Criterion now. Yeah, exactly. But there's still some out there that are still in that kind of, nope, we can't release them, including the Italian Jaws ripoff, The Great White, which, from what I understand was doing so well at the box office that Universal shut it down. And whatever kind of ruling on it has kept it from being available widely anywhere. To this day, Mm. we'll be looking at 3 Dev Adam, which is a Turkish superhero movie that brings together Spider-Man, Captain America, and there's another superhero in there too, right? Mm. It's like three, three, the title translates to Three Mighty Men. Now, like all of the films that we'll mention, you may be like, well, that's available here. We understand. But like, it's more the idea of like, oh, is there like a crystal clear authorized version out in the world? Oh, the third superhero in 3 Dev Adam is, of course, Mexican wrestler Santo. Well, not really Santo. Not the actual Santo. (laughs) A guy wearing a Santo mask. And of course, we'll be talking about, you know, one of the mothers of them all, a film by no less than Otto Preminger, one of the great filmmakers. Skidoo! Not Skidoo. I wish Skidoo. Yeah. (laughs) But no, Porgy and Bass. Mm, Which was a big budget musical that it just got shut down. I don't know why it's never been released since then. And we can find it only in horrible quality, and people don't even know if a good print exists anymore. mm -hmm. I remember reading in, what was that 35mm collector's book called? Magnificent Obsession. Yeah, where somebody said they had a complete 35mm print, and I I assume by this time it has fallen off a shelf and crushed and killed them, and then been thrown out in the garbage. But yeah, a film that still hasn't seen the light of day, we'll watch it, maybe we'll find out. I have a feeling it'll be like, eh, it's not that good. Also, kind of racist. But that's what we're going to be talking about next 
next week. No, wait, until then, on Patreon this week, what are we talking about, Will? Well, I mean, people want to know this. Justin and I watched Yoga Hosers. At the, at the, at the witching hour from like 12.30 to 2 a.m. Yeah. in a hotel room. Yeah, we, uh, we just had to do it. Yep. So that's what we'll be talking about. We continue our quest of doing a Patreon episode on every Kevin Smith film. So Yoga Hosers it is. The film with, I don't remember the actors' names. Ralph Garman. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Ralph Garman. And when I say actors, I mean all the actors under the rainbow that he plays. And we'll probably also talk about some other stuff, too. Talk about some movies that we've been watching lately, you know? <laughs> but mostly Ralph Garman. <laughs> so, mostly Ralph Garman. Until then, my name's Jonathan Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Do you like movies that you've never heard about? Then you gotta check out the Important Cinema Club Summer Movie Mind Melter, a 24-hour stream of movies handpicked by me, Justin the Clue, that's happening on twitch.tv slash Club this June 10th for 24 hours, starting at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. If you'd like to see what I've played in the past, just search Summer Movie Mind Melter on Letterboxd, and you will find a list that I made for the last uh, three years, I believe. So so check it out. It's a great time. Summer Movie Mind Melter, twitch.tv slash Important Cinema Club, June 10th, starting at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. And I would like to thank some of our new patrons who include Mr. Possum, Trey Hutchinson, Gwyn Roberts, Dan Bowling, Eric, Patrick Carroll, Riku Isomarku, Patty Delaney, Jackson Noel, Marcus Haar, Martin Law, Luke Gordnier, and Amy Butterfield. Thank you very much for becoming patrons. We could not keep doing this without you. So we watched Yoga Hosers actually when we were in the greater Boston area because we went for the first time, well, not my first time. Mm -hmm. You've been before. We went to the Moturn Extravaganza. Now, this is something that I wish I could go to every year. I went in... I think 2018 is what Matt Farley figured it out. Wait, what's this, Matt Farley? Well, it's time for you to do the same song and dance you do every time that name comes up. Well, you know, you never know when you have, have someone listening for the first time. Mm -hmm. Matt Farley is the world's most prolific songwriter. He's written over 24,000 songs. You can find them all on Spotify, and they include such songs as The Poop Song. Poop Under My Fingernails, Poop Into a Wormhole. Yeah, great stuff like that. And he's also, along with his friend Charlie Roxburgh, one of the greatest living filmmakers. Mm. Don't let the river beast get you. Local legends, magic spot, check them all out. And so me and Will went to the concert. I actually filmed it for an upcoming concert film. I'm very excited to put out. And you know, what's great about this annual event that he holds is it used to be held almost like a piece of performance art. Mm -hmm. Like, can you believe I'm doing this? Because he was just an obscure guy with no fans, basically, who would hold an extravaganza for himself where he would do a five-hour concert, maybe show a movie or maybe not. And, you know, seven or eight years ago, 15 people would come out. And now, well, over 100 people come out. They come from all over the world. Yes. They sometimes cross oceans to get here. Well, speaking of fans, Will, I think you did something you never did before at the extravaganza, right? sign autograph oh i i did sign i wasn't gonna say that on mic but yes <laughs> you'll love it you'll you, love you it. signed autographs too oh yeah i'm used to it now so like, <laughs> yeah mm -hmm, this is the way autograph books well folks brought copies of our book moturn on moturn that's right and radioactive dreams and the movies that i direct and i really appreciate it. i just wanted to oh it's wonderful everybody yeah. who came up to us and said hello thank you very much for doing it but we're also here to talk about the two feature films they premiered at this event i want to stress this there was a five-hour concert yes. and two new feature films. Now, Matt will say that maybe that was a little bit too much, that he won't be doing that again. Maybe, but I mean, on the other hand, would I trade that experience for anything? No, I would not. Incredible. Like, it's just so surreal. No one ever does two new feature films 
followed by a five-hour concert, which I got to say, it was very tiring because I was filming it. But every song, I was like, oh, yeah, I know this song. And you said a similar thing, right? Oh, I was just, well, that's the thing. It's like, I always thought of myself, I got into Matt Farley through the through the movies. Mm-hmm. And I've always liked the music. But like listening to this concert, it was like, I, I've been following him for so long that I love every single one of these songs. <laughs> yeah, like, how how has that happened? I think a lot of the movie in people, then they like get into the music. And I think it's, for me, especially, it was like the concert clicked it into place. I'm like, oh no, this rules. Like, he's very good at this song stuff. And which can get lost because he has so many songs. It can be overwhelming. But check out, I think the big heist, they're releasing a new album every week for the next five weeks. So check that out on Spotify or wherever you listen to your music. But so the two movies that they premiered, the first one, I almost don't want to say too much about it because it's actually not coming out until the fall. It's called Heard She Got Murdered. And it's a sequel to his kind of stark, serious, meditation on being perceived as a failure hurt you got married and it just takes things into interesting new directions <laughs> maybe, interesting maybe, new maybe direc- that's and also like when it comes out during the fall he's gonna do some pretty innovative things with it yes and i don't think he's gonna say that unless you ask him directly what he's doing and then he'll tell you it's so hard not to talk about that because like it is so wild what he's gonna do with it but hey listen we got a whole other movie to talk about here yeah, though yeah, yeah. but i just want to say hurt she got murdered when you're watching it i would highly recommend that you watch hurt she got married before i don't know how impenetrable the film will be if you haven't seen that one that you're watching and you're like what are they doing like they're breaking hurt she got married and that's the point that's what they're trying to do yeah and it's so funny well i know you feel this way too every time there's a new motorn or shock marathons movie mm-hmm. you watch it and for the first 20 minutes it's like oh my god they lost it and then it's like oh no there's a reveal in hurt you got murdered that like i fell out of my chair laughing <laughs> so literally funny. it was so funny and by the way the reason i have that feeling when when we start these movies is because all of their recent movies have gone in some insane new direction well that's the thing is that like you see clips from their movies and you're like oh you know they're doing the same thing every time right like they have there's no each one is different well like I mean, after Slingshot Cops, there was like five years where there were no movies. And Slingshot Cops is like, it's a particular, it's like a buddy cop spoof. And then the day drop heard heard she got married and i was shocked watching it the first time it's like oh wait a minute this isn't really a comedy mm. this is like this is uh, a, a drama this is contemplative this has things to say yeah i mean they all have things to say but this one really does like, like specifically yeah and then like metal detector maniac <laughs> which which for the first hour is like okay where is this going yeah. and then and then where it goes and then where it goes oh. is insane <laughs> yes. and then magic spot which is like, like just yeah very sweet and all of that, like if, I mean, if all you'd seen was River Beast and Freaky Farley, you, you think, oh, they do like genre parodies, right? Yeah. And so when they, when they do that without warning and then, but then Boston Johnny, and now <laughs> you've, now you've been acclimated. Yeah. Acclimate poopy, acclimate. You've been acclimated to what Hershey Got Married mm. did and what Magic Spot did. And now Boston Johnny is like the silliest movie they've ever made. You know, I think that it's important to also discuss Charlie Roxburgh because yes. I think what Charlie Roxburgh, the director of these films, he loves the like awkward little look or like holding on someone. Or the perfectly timed edit. Yes, he loves that stuff. And like I was standing beside him while we were watching, and he'd be like, ha ha ha. 
at just like holding on Matt like one beat too long. <laughs> or like there are the scenes in it where like Matt's talking and he starts talking for too long and then it'll cut mid sentence. <laughs> yes. You know? Okay. So let's talk about Boston Johnny, a film that you can go right now on Vimeo and you can rent it and watch it. So we would highly recommend doing that. You should. And you should turn the lights off, put your phone away and just stare at it. Mm. You have to be with this movie. Yes. And be with this character. <laughs> so how would you describe the premise of Boston Johnny? Well, well it's, it's a bit like if there was an SNL sketch comedy spinoff movie, but but it was not based on any particular character. Like, mm-hmm. it, it feels like you're being dropped in media res with like, Boston Johnny, you lo- you know him, you love him. He's got his catchphrase, I at time. <laughs> yes. It's nice. So I and, could- but, but like, there is actually, there is actually not that character in existence. So it, like, you've, you've seen this character for the first time with no context. That's what the movie Other is Other than like. the context of, you know Matt Farley, and yeah. now he's doing this very wacky character. Matt Farley compared it to hearing li- little Nikki's voice, Adam Sandler, in the Little Nikki movie, and going, boy, that's annoying. What if I made a movie where I did a voice yeah. like that the entire time? And that's what the movie is. I think it's one that, like, I was laughing throughout it, but it's the next day when we were talking about it that we were laughing even harder. Like, well, it's because, like, these movies... Bring, you go like, what is this? They, well, they bring you into their worlds as well. Mm-hmm. And you kind of, you sort of accept the rules of the world until you start thinking about it later. And it's like, wait, okay. So every, like the Boston market has like one pitch man. <laughs> yeah. And he, he does these, does these, okay. I, I'm not even going to bother saying it because you well, have to see I mean, it. you're talking about pitchman. We should mention that oh. uh, his rival in this movie is portrayed by Tom Scalzo and called Toronto's own Will Sloan. Toronto's own Will Sloan. And they say that name a hundred times in this movie. That's so great. And I love... So he was called that because there was a Kickstarter campaign. Yes. By no less than Gold Ninja Video. Justin DeClue over here, where people got to, for a certain amount of money, name a character. Mm-hmm. And somebody, who was not me, chose Toronto's own Will Sloan. They did ask you before that. And they said, is it okay? Oh, I... Joke and it's like, more yeah. than okay. I love that, like, they made... Like, they made the character, like, snobby and sophisticated, as opposed to... <laughs> He's also wearing a scarf, which Will does in a YouTube video you can find online. Like, Do I? Yeah, that Peter Bogdanovich one, you're wearing oh, a scarf. Oh, well... I would promise you they thought of that, because that was a Motor music video. That's right. I mean, I was in character as yeah, Peter, Peter Bogdanovich. Bogdanovich. But that's Tom Scalzo portrays the character <laughs> as a pitchman, and every pitchman in Boston, they shoot in the forest in front of a black sheet, where they just sell the product. Oh, man. I mean, I don't if we're selling this movie at all like because because it's about the experience of watching it mm. it's like you compared it to freddy got fingered it's yes. one of those kind of like patience testing comedies that like well i would with say an abrasive like, lead do you like tim robinson's i think you should leave the netflix tv show that's kind of on that wavelength but like feature length as well and again and it's sort of like a parody of a mike myers kind mm-hmm. of movie and like it's so tough to do that but i think they just nail it yeah i just think about all the time and like his accent is all over the place and there's sort of a joke about how like in all these movies there are these really abrasive characters that you're just sort of expected to love yes (laughs) and in this one it sort of takes it to the extreme of like he's a monster as well like he's a he's a horrible guy and like the the movie and he do nothing to curry your sympathy Mm -hmm. and it's so and and it's so committed to that joke Mm. and now we ask what will motern do next i don't know (laughs) whatever they want uh, ask me. They said Evil Puddle is their next one, which is their sequel uh, se- Sequel it thematically to Magic Spot. Well, we'll see. Yep. And we'll be there. And for the first 15 minutes, we're going to be like, did they lose it? Like we do every time because they haven't. 